Hey there, this is Kate. Before we start, I just wanted to let you know that in this podcast, we discuss some traumatic experiences that might be difficult for some people to hear. And before you jump into the podcast, just wanted to make you aware of that. Thanks so much. You are alive to shine. I'm Beth. And I'm Kate. And this is the Shine Podcast, where we meet lots of different people and hear about the ways that they light up the world. And here's why we're doing this. We've been changed and affected by people who shine with the love of Jesus. And the world needs people like that and like you right now. So be encouraged and let your light shine. Oh my gosh. Like, listen, though. Did you listen to somebody Thank else's you. podcast? We were like, but no lemons because apparently COVID has killed all the lemons. I don't know. Like, oh my gosh. Why? Wait, what are we drinking? It's just iced tea. Hey. I'm sweet. Oh, you're the best. We were just having a conversation on the phone today about that. <laughs> Losing sugar in our lives. Yes. It's so hard. I, I told you're the best thank you (laughs) when did you start going to kent state i started in my undergrad program in nursing were they all from kent state they all were i just kept plugging along there if i had it to do over again i would have never done i would have just gone straight for the bachelor's but i was getting divorced and i needed an income very quickly so i did that because it was an accelerated program that i did in two years After high school, what was your life like? I was a stay-at-home mom and the PTA president for many, many years. Married after high school? I got pregnant when I was in my senior year, and then we got married right after after she was born. I was, like I said, stay-at-home mom, PTA president at all the kids' things. I worked in the lunchroom collecting the lunch money, but it was only an one and three quarters hours. It was great for a stay-at-home mom. It was a little bit of extra money, but it was not going to pay bills when I got divorced. So I started doing some prereqs in 2008. What year did you get married the first time? 1997. Can we ask what happened to John? Yeah, it's a pretty crazy story. I mean... Our divorce was tumultuous. When I tell you it was a bad Lifetime movie, it was a bad Lifetime movie. But I was young, and I thought that if I loved him hard enough and cleaned the house... Was he in high school with you? So we met the summer of his senior year. I was going into my junior year. And so we dated... Well, I was a junior and senior in high school. He was already graduated you know, being young and naive. Then I got pregnant and I was raised like very, very strict Catholic. So there was no other option than we were getting married and going to make this work. And now, years later in hindsight and lots of counseling, (laughs) I know that we were never, ever equally yoked. And I just tried to push something. We had a lot of really, really ugly years. But then when Roger died, he came to the calling hours for the kids. He hugged me and he said, I'm always going to love you and I'm always going to be here for you if you need something. And so many people left my life when Roger left or when Roger died. Like so many people walked away. And there were so many times that things happened that I just did not know how to handle. And I called him and he came to help. I mean, my sump pump broke and the basement's flooded and there's a foot of water in the basement. And I don't even know where the sump pump is or how to work it because I've never had to do any of that. I mean, Roger was in construction. He had his own business. He handled all of that. And I was literally standing in my basement in a foot of water, just crying and crying. And Bella was there and John's her dad. And she said, I'm going to call my dad. He was in the grocery store about to check out with heart full of groceries, left his groceries there and came from Austin town to Columbiana. And I had called some of my friends with husbands to see if they would come and nobody even answered their phone. I think that's probably one of the most shocking things that I've experienced as a widow is how much it, I think that people don't do it intentionally, but they don't know how to handle it or they don't know you know, couples that we hung out with all the time and did life with just walked away. 
What year did he die? 2019. So that's been March 14th. Three years. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about it? Mm-hmm. I'm hoping I can hold it together while I talk about it, but I it's do okay. want to talk we about it. We got new um, clean <laughs> What year did you get married to Roger then? 2013. But we met the night that John told me for the second time that he was going to leave. So John had left the first time. He was supposed to get this new job in South Carolina. We were supposed to move there. We had this trip that was a vacation slash trip to go look at housing, try and find a place. And he had to take a test to get this job. And ironically, it was scheduled the week we were supposed to go away. So I went with the kids on the trip that we already had scheduled and planned for. And he stayed behind to take this test. And I found out afterwards, I didn't know in the midst, but I found out afterwards that he had had a girl over to our house and had slept with her that whole week in my bed and she made him breakfast in my kitchen and I didn't know it in the midst of it. He ended up leaving the first time we had had dinner, just like it was a normal everyday event. We had dinner. We had gotten the kids down for the night and we went, our basement was finished. We went in the basement. I was folding laundry and he was sitting in the recliner and he said, I'm leaving. And I said, oh, like, you going to the store? Or? He said, no, I'm leaving. What, what do you mean? And he got up on the chair and he grabbed like a paper bag and he started putting some work clothes in it and stuff. And he's like, I'm just not happy I'm leaving. I mean, it was just out of left field. Like, we just had dinner. Like, everything, we're getting ready to move to South Carolina. And I was like, what do you mean? And he packed that bag and he was on the front porch and I was screaming and begging and crying. And he left. I thought it was so admirable that he wanted me to be a stay-at-home mom. And, you know, I thought it was, but that was his way of controlling me. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. he took everything, left me with $3.10. I didn't even have enough to buy a package of pull-ups. And our youngest was wearing pull-ups at night. And I had to call him to beg him to buy a pack of pull-ups to bring to me for her. It was very, very, very ugly. So he left. You know, we got married in the Catholic Church. But, like, the the priest, even at our wedding, like, in the, the service, had to bring it out that we had premarital sex and had a child out of wedlock, like, in our <laughs> wedding. So, I mean, he was baptized in my church, but we didn't, certainly weren't. And for that period in our in both of our lives, it was very ugly on both ends. I don't feel like I ever lost my faith during that time, but I certainly fell away from it for a long time. But I really meant my vows when I said them, and I wanted to make it work for my kids and for me in that, in that moment. But, I mean, now I know that that was never going to work, and it was never meant to be. And then I actually, ironically— Did you live in Austin Town then? Yeah. When did you move to Columbiana? We moved— in 2016. And while we were searching, we were looking in North Lima and Canfield, but combined we had six children all together when we had them all. So we couldn't buy your average or even four bedroom house. You know, we were looking for five, six bedrooms and they were either $500,000 and we couldn't afford it. So one day, like every day it was my job. I was searching, searching, searching. I just opened my search to any location, five bedrooms or larger, show me any house. <laughs> and our house came up and it was a foreclosed house. And my dad thought we were absolutely, so many people thought we were absolutely crazy. But Roger and I were like, this is gonna be fun. This is gonna be like building a house. You know, the shell was there, you know, the structure was there and he was in construction. So we closed in June of 16. We would go and work on it every day after work. And on the weekends, we would stay there before there was even hot water yet. And we finished Gracie's room first and put carpet only in that room. And then we had a bunch of mattresses. Each of us had one laundry basket with our clothes, our toiletries. All of your stuff had to fit into that one laundry basket. And there was all these little single beds, blow up mattresses lined up in this bedroom. And we lived like refugees over that summer while we did room by room and fixed up that house. And he, he did it all room by room. A lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> Sugar? No. Okay. 
Okay. Do you need sugar? I added a little bit. I'm sweet enough. How much caffeine is in tea? I'll tell you tonight at 2 a.m. I'll text you and I'll be like, I'm still up. (laughs) (laughs) I used to be able to drink caffeine all the time, nonstop, whenever it didn't matter. And then suddenly, because I felt like I could drink caffeine anytime, all the time, and it didn't matter, I had a Mountain Dew, which I, we never have Mountain Dew, but I had one randomly. And then I'm laying in bed at 3 a.m., staring at the ceiling. Why? Why can't I sleep? Because I'm old. <laughs> and people, old people can't drink caffeine at night. And I, that was chugging a Mountain Dew at 11 p.m., acting like I was 19. Can't do uh, it. Sometimes I forget. <laughs> and then you're reminded at 3 a.m. Yeah, I'm <laughs> what Catherine, is going on? Nice try, buddy. Life is cruel. <laughs> Yes. And we live in a fallen world. It's like probably And our 10 p.m. snacks stick on our hips when you're our age. That is true. Enjoy it while you're young, youth. (laughs) So true. Welcome, Shine Podcast listeners. It's Beth. Who are we tonight? It's just Kate. And we are here with Janine McGinnis. Yeah. The wonderful, fabulous, beautiful Janine. Thanks for coming tonight. Thanks. Thanks for having me. A little bit of a delay, had a dead battery, (laughs) jumper cables that didn't work, but we made it. Janine was born in the Northside Hospital in Youngstown and was raised in Austintown, Fitch. She went to St. Anne's Catholic School through sixth grade and then moved over to Austintown, Fitch, was there from seventh through twelfth grade. She met her high school sweetheart as a junior. She got pregnant when she was a senior, got married right after graduating, and she and her first husband, John, were married for 13 tumultuous years. (laughs) They had three beautiful children, Alexis, who's 25, John, who's 22, and Isabella, who is 18. She also has a bonus son because Alexis is married to Dave. After her divorce was over with John, she met Roger. They got married in 2013. They have two kids together, Gracie, who's 12, and Mason, who's 10. Gracie goes to Columbiana. Mason goes to Crestview. And her stepson, Roger, who's 15, goes to Fitch. So three school systems. You got babies all over the place. Yeah. Janine was a stay-at-home mom, PTO president, and a lunch lady when she was married to John. After their divorce, she had to go back to school and find a career for herself. She bartended and waitressed through nursing school. She got her associates in nursing, her bachelor's in nursing, and her master's in nursing. And she's currently a women's health nurse practitioner. So went back to school, five kids, six kids. Well, I had the three when I started. Then I had Gracie and Mason in nursing school because that was a great idea. (laughs) Not so much. Certainly not planned, but blessings nonetheless. And so I did that. I started with three kids and then pregnant with four and five during my first associate's degree. Which you may have thought it sounded crazy and probably everyone would agree It is crazy to have two kids when you're in nursing school when you have three. But I think God was probably looking out after you. Oh, absolutely. Her husband, Roger, died of suicide in 2019. And so she's been on this journey of healing from this tragedy for herself and her family for the past three years. So do you want to talk about what happened to Roger? Sure. So it was a normal, regular day. He had started his own company. He wanted to start his own company, and he had stood by me through my associates and my bachelor's degree. Like, you know, when I said I was going to go back to school, lots of people told me I would never make it. I was told that I was too dumb to ever make it through school and that I was wasting money. But he believed in me from the moment I met him. He believed in me and he supported me. So when he said he wanted to start his own business, I supported him in that. And I said, well, I'm going to go back to school and I'll get a nurse practitioner degree. So that will supplement our income so that you have time to build up your business. And so we had done that. He had started his business 
before I was done with school. So I was in my master's program and I had to do a lot of clinical hours. So I cut down from a full-time position to a part-time position so that I could accommodate the clinical hours I needed to do for my program. I was working part-time, but because he was self-employed, I carried the benefits for our whole family. I mean, I'm sure it's this way for most jobs, but in nursing, if you're part-time, you pay significantly more for your benefits and stuff. You don't earn as much PTO and stuff like that. You know, we were struggling with six kids and I was fortunate that I could pick up extra shifts as a, as my schedule accommodated. And he had had a rough winter in his business. And so he got a part-time job delivering pizzas from at Pizza Hut to help out. That day in particular, I had interviewed, gone through like multiple steps of interviewing for a nurse practitioner job. And I had gone through like four different series of interviews, met with all the the higher ups, met with the physicians. They sent for references. Like we really thought this was it. This was going to be the job. This was going to help us financially and take some of that pressure off. And the day before, they have this website that you log on to to upload your resume and see where you're at in in the hiring process. And so I checked it, anticipation that it was going to say an offer will be made. The website just said, it didn't give you any feedback. It just said, not chosen for the position. So that was the night before, and I was crushed. I felt like I had let my family down, let him down, because we were so close. I mean, I really thought this was the position. So the next day, I was very sullen and just sad. But I went to work. He went to work. We... Met in the, at the driveway like we often did, swapping kids, picking up kids. Bella was at track. He was going to work at, at Pizza Hut. And so I got the little kids, Gracie and Mason, off of him and went, was heading to go pick up Bella from track. Mason had been home because he had a virus, a stomach virus or something. But I was so sad and I didn't even get out of the car to like hug him or greet him. I was just still sad about the events and it wasn't a long interaction, but he hugged the kids and said goodbye and said he had a headache. I just assumed he was getting the virus that Mason had, but he didn't seem shaken or upset or frantic or anything that you would imagine somebody would appear or look if they were contemplating suicide. It was a short shift. It was just like a two-hour shift he was covering for somebody else. So he said, I'll see you later, and we'll have dinner, and we'll talk it out, and we'll figure out a next plan. He was forever the cheerleader of us, of our relationship, and, you know, always we'll figure it out. We'll get it all taken care of. And so he said, I love you, babe. He pulled out of the driveway, and I went and picked up Bella from Crestview at track practice. I was coming back home was a matter of a few minutes and he had his own business with markings all over his truck for his business name so his truck was very recognizable it's the only one that existed I had gotten a call from a dear friend of mine that I had worked with and she lives in Columbiana also and her husband had been driving by and saw Roger's truck with a police car on Main Street and he assumed that Roger had been in a little fender bender and was just calling. He called his wife and she called me just to like, give me the heads up. We think Roger might have been in an accident. You might want to go up there and check on him. Just make sure you're he's okay. He said, you know, he didn't see any major damage. So I thought, okay. So I dropped off Bella and said, I'm going to go check. Make sure everything's okay. I'll be right back. Just hang out here with the kids. I'll be right back. I was heading towards where they told me his truck was. Then I got a second call from her, from gentleman's wife, and she said, I don't really know what's going on. Justin tried to go up to the truck to check on him, and they said he wasn't allowed by the truck. Roger was unconscious. And I was like, well, that's just weird. Like, what do you mean he's unconscious? And I said, is there an ambulance there? And she said, I don't know what's going on. At this point, I'm minutes away. So I pulled into that little gas station right there and I'm assessing the scene there are two cop cars there they're kind of surrounding his truck and there's not an ambulance and I didn't hear any sirens and I'm thinking he's unconscious there's no signs that an ambulance or anybody's coming to work on him so I just put my car in park open the door and start running towards the truck because I'm thinking well I'll start working on him until somebody gets here because I can do CPR you know I've done this a million times I can do this I start running towards the truck truck and 
two police officers very aggressively met me and like started restraining me because they didn't want me to approach the vehicle. I mean, they weren't forceful by any means. You know, they didn't know who I was or what I was doing. And I said, you don't understand. I'm his wife. It's fine. And he said, ma'am, you cannot go near that vehicle. And I said, no, you don't understand. I was in plain clothes because I was working that day as a surgical nurse. So I changed my clothes at work. He wouldn't know that I was a nurse and I could do CPR and this was all going to be fine. And so I, I'm a nurse. You know, I'll start CPR. Is the bus on the way like he's like ma'am very forcefully two officers holding me on either shoulder restraining ma'am you cannot go near that vehicle and I said yeah I'm going now I'm getting angry and they restrained me again and they said ma'am he's deceased and the world stopped I didn't believe it I didn't what he said was like incomprehensible like what do you mean what do you mean he's deceased i said no you're wrong i'll find a pulse i will find a pulse i don't care if i have to rip his pants off in the middle of the street i will find a pulse and i will work on him and they said ma'am it's a crime scene there's a there's a weapon in the car and he is deceased then he said is there anybody or anyone that you think would want to hurt him And again, I was just like, I just couldn't even understand what the words that he was saying. What do you mean? I saw him eight minutes ago in the driveway. Eight minutes. He said, I love you. I'll see you in a few hours. What are you saying? Like, we live in Columbiana. It's the nicest place in America. Nobody's going to shoot my husband in the middle of Main Street. What are you talking about? And at this point, my friend's husband was there. And he, I fell to the ground. I couldn't even hold myself up. And I screamed the most carnal cry I've ever heard in my life because I just couldn't even comprehend what was being said. I just could not. I laid in the street and he bent over and he just He just held me and shortly after his wife came and another friend came and at that point it was still very unclear what had happened. I got somewhat close to the truck to the point where I could see blood because I almost didn't even believe it. I thought like they were making it up. Shortly thereafter, they quickly put um, tarp around his truck because somebody from news came and... It was really moments, but it seems like forever. But when they actually, the coroner arrived and they moved him out of the truck for that Christmas I had made on Shutterfly, made magnets with all the pictures of the kids. Said like, this is us and had all of our kids and picture of him and I. And he had it tucked under his leg with a post-it note that had my name and our address and it was on a post-it note and it said I'm so very sorry and I love you and it said Roger it had my name our address our my phone number listed so once they found that it was pretty obvious that it was not any kind of foul play or he had taken his life then everything just stopped the world stopped and I just, I just laid in the street and I hadn't eaten much that day because I was so depressed about not getting that job. And I'm thankful because I was like vomiting in the street and it was just bile. And I mean, I can't even tell you, I screamed, I cried, I screamed at my friend's husband that was there. Like, how can this happen? Like, what do you mean that this is happening? I don't even understand. So they, you know, kept saying, who can we call? Who can we call? And I said, you need to call Lex. That's my oldest daughter. And she wasn't answering. So they quickly started, my friends that were there started calling my friends and my phone. And my son, I was supposed to be going to my, it was my son's senior night for speech. He was in speech. And so he was at that. Bella and the little kids are at home. 
and Bella's calling my phone because she's like, what's going on? I think somebody had said, you know, that they were going to take him to the hospital because they just didn't even know what to say to her so that she didn't completely panic. I had probably about 45 minutes to an hour to somehow (laughs) pull myself together before I walked into my house and had to tell my children that their dad was gone. Afterwards, the days after, in the aftermath, the police kept apologizing over and over again. We're so sorry that you got called to the scene. Like, that's never how we handle this. We're so sorry. We're so sorry. You know, we would have never done that. But in my view, that was absolutely God's grace that I was there because the alternative would have been that they knocked on my door and I would have been home alone with nobody other than my kids. And they would have seen that display of me falling to the ground and losing it, completely losing it. And I, when I recall those memories, it still to the core shakes me and I would never want them to have seen that. And we would have been alone. And so I believe wholeheartedly that that was absolutely God's grace because I was by no means collected, but I had a few moments to process it myself before I had to pull myself together for my kids. Monica and Jaden were in a car, a couple cars behind that when it happened. And, you know, they saw you, they saw you close, prayed for you. Because like some, something bad just happened. Yeah. I mean, the police report said that his truck had sat still through a couple cycles of the light before somebody got out of their car to check on him and that he was, you know, not moving and called the police. But I didn't know that Monica and he were there. Yeah. I mean, it was changed, changed everything. Really, really changed everything. But... I'm so thankful and I felt so bad afterwards because I know it changed and affected my friend's husband. He had a rough time with it in the days later, but I'm so thankful that he was there and that I think that he probably had some feeling bad because he had called me, but oh my gosh, the alternative, when I think about that, I would never, ever, ever want just completely losing it. I could not believe it. I just could not believe it. So at that point, that's really what brought you, that was the catalyst, what brought you here to the upper room and brought you into our lives. And, you know, you grew up with a strong Catholic faith and you knew God and you always had that around you. But tell us who or what turned your light on in the midst of all this trauma. Yeah. I did. I had was raised. I went to Catholic church, and that back then you went to mass the, every day at, at school, and then I went to Sunday school and mass at in my regular church, and so I had faith. But once I got pregnant in high school, and there was lots of people that stopped talking to my family and kind of moved away from us. Certainly were talking about me because I had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. And so that had pushed me not so much away from my faith, but certainly away from the Catholic faith. I feel like I'm thankful for it because it gave me a foundation. But my experience, I'm not saying this is everybody's, but my experience is that it's guilt-based. And so I carried a lot of guilt from early on, you know, because I got married when I was 19. So even before that, I had guilt because I had premarital sex and then I had this baby out of wedlock and then I got divorced and then I wouldn't annul my marriage because that meant that my kids were not part of anything. And so I wouldn't do that. And that was such a, you know, my whole divorce really shook me to the core. Tumultuous is a good description. I don't wish him badly. You know, we had three beautiful children, but we weren't not equally matched from the get-go. And so I thought that if I loved him hard enough and cleaned the house well enough and cooked dinner, that I could change the trajectory of our relationship. And I just couldn't. 
that situation left me very jaded and questioning a lot of things about my faith and God and how this could all be. Then I met Roger and Roger was a completely, completely different experience for me. He loved me and had the utmost respect for me. And my marriage with John, you know, it was not very, it was kind of ugly at times. Lots of words spoken over me in that marriage that were deep pains hurt me incredibly and made me believe that I was not worthy and that I was nothing, absolutely nothing without him. And so I did not believe that I could be on my own or independent. And so having gotten married so young, I defined my world by being John's wife. And I sat in my kitchen when that marriage fell apart and I realized that my whole life was dependent on him. All my eggs were in his basket, but it was his basket. And he made it clear almost every day of our marriage that it was his vehicle, it was his cars, it was his home. He made me. When I sat in that kitchen and he had taken everything and I realized like my life insurance, my health insurance, everything was based on him. I said, well, I got to figure this out because I'm never going to be in this position again. And so then I met Roger and it was not the great timing. I was still married to John and, you know, our divorce took years and years to finalize. But he, he showed me a different way and our marriage wasn't perfect, but he never in our entire time together, never called me a name. I mean, I was called names horrible, horrible names. But he never did. He never once disrespected me in that manner. And he taught me something different. But I still went from that relationship with John into Roger. And I did not, I really was not looking. Ironically, he was separated from his wife. I was separated. We met on the night that John left me for the second time. We met that night. I was pulling into work and he had locked his keys in the car and I was crying the whole way to work. And so I'm trying to like make sure my eye makeup isn't all messed up in the mirror. And he knocks on my window and asks me for a Slim Jim. And I'm thinking in my head, like, do I look like I have a Slim Jim? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so he had no idea. My best friend had come to like console me through the night. I was bartending because I got the bartending job when he left me the first time. Um, she came up to sit with me that night and console me and I was crying off and on and Roger took me outside again, never met him in my life. And he's like, you know, I don't know what's going on with you. And he really wasn't even drinking. He had gone there with a bunch of guys after work and he's like, I don't know what's going on. I can tell you're hurting. I just want you to know that everything's going to be okay. And Again, even my best friend was like annoyed, like, leave her alone. She does not need to be hit on at this point. But he really, in hindsight, he wasn't. He was just genuinely just trying to say, like, it's going to be okay. When we moved here to Columbiana, we moved here in 2016, and we bought this foreclosure house, and it was a giant project, but we worked and plugged along. But our voting spot was here. And so a couple of times we had come here, and we had always said, this kind of looks like a nice place. We should check it out sometime. But then life happens and you get busy and kids and life. And we never did. And so I was in the days following his death. I literally reflect on the, that time and feel like it was kind of an outer body experience. Like I was walking through the motions, but I was not. I was the not there. I was not present. And I think that's God's grace and preservation. I mean, I was almost like a child again. My oldest daughter kind of, she's in the army, so she kind of went into soldier mode. And she was like giving me Benadryl at night and tucking me in because I couldn't sleep. I had horrible nightmares every time I closed my eyes. And she would lay next to me, coddle me like I was the child. She took over my phone for those days after. Like, I couldn't even respond to my phone. I couldn't even function. Like, I I was not suicidal, but I did not want to be here. I did not want to walk through this. I did not know how I was going to. I didn't believe I was capable of it. And going back to those beliefs of not being worthy and, you know, I really didn't believe I was capable of even making it through two weeks without a husband, without somebody there. And so I 
was in the shower getting ready to go to the funeral home to plan his services. And he had no life insurance. And I didn't even know how I was going to pay the bills, let alone how am I going to pay for this? I'm in the shower trying to wrap my mind around how I'm going to do this. And I cried a lot in the shower those days because I didn't want my little kids to hear, you know. And so I felt like between the shower and the door, like nobody could hear me. And so I was just crying, like just so broken. And I fell, fell to the ground again, just like I did in the street in my shower. I just was screaming out, God, I can't, I cannot do this. Like you have to pick me up and physically carry me through this because I can't, I cannot do this. I can't. As real as I sit here, I felt being lifted in that shower and finishing what I had to do and putting on clothes and going to that to that funeral home. And I, I audibly heard, it was as clear as day, the voice said, I will help you, but you need to walk with me. I knew that the only way I was going to get through this, the only way I was going to make it through was through faith, and that I needed to find a place to support me in that. And so my older kids were very much like, and are still kind of very much angry and not as open to faith right now. I don't want to say that they don't believe, but they're just, just still very angry. But me and Gracie and Mason went off and we went church hopping. We tried a couple places and I had I had looked up the website on the computer and I had listened to one of Chris's messages and I was like this guy seems nice I like him I'm like okay we're going here today <laughs> and we came here and I think that I cried from the second I walked in all the way through so I would say that this place this fellowship and building and what I was met with that day, like Peggy and Dee and Jim and Marta and Greg. At the end of the service, you know, people had introduced themselves and said hello. And I was still wearing my wedding rings at that point. And so someone said, you know, what's your husband do? And I just lost it. Ugly crying in front of these people that I've never even met. And I said, he's, he died. And I don't know who said it, but they said, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, how? And Marta was standing there. I must have muttered the words, he died by suicide. And she had her hand on me and she said, was it Main Street? And I'm ugly crying in front of these people, losing it. And I said, yes. She had remembered from reading the write-up. She said, you have many children. She said, we've, we've been praying for you. And it just, it changed me. The kindness that I felt and just the grace. And there was just something very healing that I experienced every time we came. And so as we were walking out of that building, this building that day, Marta, she had taken my name, but then she came after us. And when we were walking out, Gracie said, Mommy, I like this place. It feels like home. And I said, I do too. And so that was it. But when Marta was coming out, I'm thinking, she's probably chasing me because she's concerned for my children because I've just <laughs> ugly cried in front of all these strangers. And she was following me and she's like, I want to bring you a meal. And she said, would that be okay? And I couldn't, I just could not wrap my mind around how could people that didn't even know me how could they be so kind? You know, how could there be that much kindness? And how could this perfect stranger be asking to bring me a meal? Which, I mean, I couldn't cook for months, so that was a blessing. But beyond that, what do they have? Like, <laughs> Because I never, ever been witness to such love. And so I would say, you know, I had that faith my whole life. But mm -hmm. this place and this fellowship is what... Turn my light on. I have to blow my nose. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
how has your relationship changed with God? Well, I think that's another thing. In the Catholic Church, I, in my understanding, I don't think it was really taught like to have a relationship with Jesus. The idea that you could even have a personal relationship with Jesus was so, so crazy to me. And so I just could not wrap my mind around it or understand it. And so I remember in the first few months, like I kept looking around, like, where's the rule book? Like, what do we have to do? Like, what? Even the first Sunday that we that we came and they were doing communion, because in the Catholic Church, oh my gosh, you cannot take communion until you've made your first communion and you've said a hundred Hail Marys. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if they can have communion because they've not made their first communion. I don't know what, where's the rule book, Greg? I need the rule book. <laughs> And I did foundations and I'm still like, Greg, there's still like, this is not clear cut rules. Like I need to know. (laughs) So I think that when I first started here, I really didn't understand a lot of it. And, And it's not that I didn't understand it, but I didn't, I had never grown up in this different way of thinking, I guess. And so it was so new and so mind boggling to me that, you know, it took some time to, and it's still, goodness, it's still a work in progress because Mm -hmm. I still go back to that, what has been impounded in me my, the majority of my life that, you know, I'm not worthy. And, but then I'm trying to impress this upon Gracie and Mason and Gracie had a rough year with bullying and mean kids. And so I'm telling her you are loved and Jesus loves you no matter what, but I don't believe it for myself because Mm. he couldn't love this person that had child out of wedlock with John. And then I was technically still married to John, met Roger, got pregnant. So now I've had three children out of wedlock and everything he says is true for everyone else but me. It has changed immensely just absolutely in the Catholic church again. And I went to Catholic school. We weren't really reading the word. We, you know, we memorized some lines, we, you know, memorized some parts, but every Sunday is the specific Sunday and you read the same story out of the Bible and really delving into the Bible and developing that relationship, I don't think was foundational. And so that has changed for me immensely. The music, I feel like there's was so much healing in the music and I'm just a crier by nature, but those first couple months, like, and it was a safe spot to come here and cry because I could just tell the kids that I was crying because the music was so good and crying a lot of things out in that time. Mm-hmm. You okay? <laughs> I was like, I'm uh, crying too. I'm like, I don't even know if I go to the pool tonight. Look at it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, They'll think you were swimming. <laughs> I know. My eyes open in the chlorine. So I didn't get that job, and now Roger's dead, and I am have this part-time job. And so then I started applying to RN jobs, full-time RN jobs, because I'm like, okay, now I just, I can't even be picky. I just need a full-time job because I've got these kids that think they need to eat every day, and so I have to pay for it. I applied to all these full-time RN jobs, regular RN jobs, and they wouldn't hire me because they said I was overqualified. And I'm applying to nurse practitioner jobs and they want somebody with experience and I was so angry and just so lost. I keep trying to pick up these pieces and you've given me this complete and utter crap show (laughs) and now all I'm trying to do is support my kids. Why are you standing in the way of a job for me? Like I was mad. I was angry at God. Like I keep interviewing for all these jobs and nobody will give me a job and you say you won't forsake me but here I am struggling to feed my kids and I don't know how I'm going to make next month. And so... I was angry, but in that time, and this is hindsight, but in that time, I had a multiple per diem jobs that I could pick up if I was available, and so people had left, so they were using me a lot, so even though I wasn't contracted full-time hours, I was getting extra hours, and I was I was making ends meet. I was barely keeping the lights on, but I had them on. Then... I didn't start my job as a nurse practitioner until May of 2020. And so I had gone over a year. And I'm like, why? Why do you keep closing these doors? Like, just open a door. I just need a door open. But 
I believe that the work I'm doing now is absolutely my destiny and where God wanted me to be. But I could not do the role that I do now in the mental state I was in. And so he provided provision during that time because I needed that time to be able to heal partly my own hurts before I could take on this role of caring for patients. You know, not that I didn't care for patients as a nurse, but as a nurse practitioner, I feel like it's there's great responsibility with that. You know, these patients are trusting their lives with me. You know, I take care of pregnant women every day and I'm caring for their pregnancy. And so I needed to have a clear mindset and not that I was completely healed in that year, but I could not have taken on the responsibility of that role. I needed that year to grow and heal before I could go out and do the work. And when I was choosing to go back as a nurse practitioner, I prayed a lot about it and said, like, if this isn't the path I should take, if I should just get a full-time job and help try to support the family. I had always talked about doing the nurse practitioner thing, like, years away, like, when little kids were older. But I just felt that he was drawing me to that then. And I prayed about it, and I said, you know, if this is what I'm supposed to do, make the path clear. And most nurse practitioner students will tell you that the hardest part of their program is finding people that will agree to precept them, to take them on, because it's a lot to pour yourself into somebody and teach them. But I didn't struggle. Like, people came to me and said, I want to precept you if you're really doing this. I didn't struggle to find preceptors or places to go, and I made it through the program. And I believe without a doubt that it is my absolute where I'm supposed to be because I have been that unwed young mom and I have, you wouldn't know it by how many kids I have, but I did struggle with infertility between Alexis and JJ. So I just feel like I have the opportunity to care for these women and I really try to show the love that Jesus has as walking that line because in healthcare you have to be, you know, be very cautious about what you say. And I have told lots of my patients at the end of my appointment that I'll pray for them as I'm walking out the door. And my experience walking through Roger's suicide changed me in that when I was in my undergrad program, I hated psych nursing. I was like, I will never be a psych nurse. I don't know when you're supposed to be tough and give them rules or be lenient. That's just not my gig. I will never do that. And it has absolutely impacted the way I practice because I ask every patient that I see, every patient, how are you coping? You know, I'll lead it into how you dealing with COVID and the year of craziness. Do you notice any increased depression? Do you have any suicidal thoughts? I ask every patient. And the doctors that I work with have said, I've been practicing for 30 plus years and I've never in my whole 30 years had the amount of people tell me that have told you that they're struggling or they're suicidal. I just don't get it. I believe that that's somehow giving purpose to the pain that I've walked through. And it changed me to know that I'm a healthcare professional and I didn't see any signs. He was taking Chantix, which is a medication to quit smoking. And it is very much known to have suicidal ideation and cause those thoughts. So I don't know if it was that or, you know, in hindsight, I I think there was some underlying depression because he had had a really rough month. On the side of heaven, I'll never know, you know, what triggered it. Because even the police said, like, this is not your typical, you know, usually somebody that's going to complete suicide goes off. They want to be away, not be found right away. Or it's in the heat of, mo- of the moment after an argument and they go into the next room. And, and this was none of it. So I think that the Chantix probably played a part in it. But it changed me forever in that I practice differently now as a nurse practitioner and really genuinely ask all my patients. A lot of patients tell me, you know, they're struggling and, you know, facilitated getting them help. Something I'm trying to impress on all my kids and myself that this is a chapter in our story, but it's not our entire story. And to try and bring about change out of that pain. And it's not always easy, you know. There's still lots of days that I'm just like, I just can't. And in in the midst of 
this tragedy, you know, you are doing work that lights you up mm-hmm. and you're letting your light shine by doing this work and making a difference and checking on people. And it's changed you, but it's changed you in a way that makes you more empathetic and you're able to maybe see things that other people aren't able to see in your practice that's probably saving other people's lives. I hope so. I mean, it absolutely has changed because, I mean, from the outside in, we were the perfect middle class family. You know, we were had every struggle that most families have, but I beat myself up for a long time because beyond being his wife and I couldn't understand how I didn't see it, I'm a healthcare provider. Like, I'm in healthcare. I knew that that medication had those complications. I asked him now whether or not he was having those thoughts and just thought he was a macho man and he could beat it, you know, didn't want to share them or didn't, you know. I asked him, are you having bad thoughts? Are you having bad nightmares? And I had no idea. Absolutely, positively no idea. What's the suicide hotline number? Yeah, I have it. The suicide hotline number, they can text HOME to 741-741. You can text 211 at any time. And then the suicide hotline number is 1-800-273-8255. And that's one of the things that I appreciate too about here, especially the hearing about the men's groups and them trying to, because I think that it's threefold greater for men over women. And I think that that stigma of, you know, you have to be proud and men can't talk and think that's still present in our society. The statistics show that it's, you know, suicide is, the numbers are staggering. In 2020, according to the CDC, it was the second leading cause of death for people between 10 and 34. Second leading cause, one death every 11 seconds is by suicide. And that is totally preventable, but it Mm. it has to be the change within us. Like the stigma that goes along with it for so many months, I couldn't even speak the truth that it was suicide because I was so deeply ashamed. When people heard that I was a widow, they would feel you know, you could see, you could see that on their face. And then when they would hear it was by suicide, their faces changed oftentimes. And I think it's because sometimes suicide is associated with, oh, you know, there must have been a struggle their whole life or underlying drug problem or, you know, and that's not always the case. But there's such a stigma behind it. Nothing can change without us talking about it and being open about it. And I just wonder, like, you know, when we came here to vote and we both said it was looked like a nice place, like if he would have been plugged in, if we were plugged in, like maybe it could have been different. I just think that the change has to start with us. Those statistics are staggering. And I think it's really important for us to know that. And we need to be checking on our friends oh and gosh. checking on people and asking them, are you okay? Are you really okay? Yeah. And that's just it. You know, everybody, we all say, how are you? And we all expect people to say, oh, I'm good. How are you? And I think a lot of times, specifically in my in my role in the healthcare setting, I think that a lot of times people don't ask because they don't always know what to say if that person says, no, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what's going on. And people don't know, okay, well, now what do I do? What's the next step? And you don't have to know all the answers. You know, statistics show if you can delay that thought for five minutes, you can stop a suicide from happening. If you can change it for just... A matter of seconds, you could potentially stop that person from completing suicide because a lot of times, you know, that's all it takes. Asking those questions and being sincerely asking those questions, like, it's okay to not be okay, but we need to come up with a plan of, you know, how to keep you safe. And I think people also need to know if you're out there and you feel like you're struggling that find someone to talk to. Because there are people, you may not feel it, but there are people out there that love you and care about you and want to extend help and grace. So it's okay to be vulnerable with people and let them know that you do need help. We need to keep saying that mental health is so important. And it's been a really rough season and a lot of people are struggling and you're not alone if you're out there. Reach out because people care. And for the rest of us, we need to check on our friends and our family and ask, are you okay? Are you really okay? 
and you want to be a church place people need to be safe you need safe people but you need safe places too it makes me so upset that the church in the past has become so well known yeah that was not my experience even someone that came to the calling hours and said well this is what happens when you sin and make bad choices those words stuck those words stuck I hope if somebody gets nothing else that they get, especially the guys out there, because I think if we're all being honest, we've all had low points in our lives and, you know, maybe not really thought about suicide per se, but had a fleeting thought of what if I weren't here? I just would urge you that you're not alone and those feelings will pass. But I would not wish this on my absolute worst enemy because it's hard. It is hard to walk still questioning, still wondering, watching my children as they grow and mature and process it differently as they become preteens. And and I know, and I know, and I know in my heart of hearts, like he was an amazing man and he was the best father I've ever met. He was over the moon about his kids. And so I know without a shadow of a doubt that if he was in his right mind, he would not have pulled that trigger. He would not have made that decision. Something changed in his mind for that split second. That's all it was, was a second. And he could have breathed through that second and we could have figured whatever was going on out. My biggest takeaway is that no matter what you're feeling or whatever you're walking through, your life absolutely matters. And don't believe the lie that the world would be better off without you or your family or your wife or your kids, because I can absolutely promise you that is not true. And my heart aches for my kids that live it. It has to change with talking and bringing acceptance and you're saying we need to check on people. I think that just is connecting to that all of this has to be done in process with other people, which is why we talk about relationships and being in community and the necessity and power of having people and processing with people and healing with people. We were never made or created to deal with these things in isolation. You're right. And I feel like men's relationships are even different. You know, I know as girls, we'll go to lunch, we'll complain about our kids and our husbands and our spouses and everything. And, you know, we'll talk it out and we'll feel better afterwards. But guys don't always do that. And he had some friends, but it wasn't friend, you know, it wasn't the type of relationships that I have with my friends. Like you said, being plugged into a church family and a place where more times than I can count. I still kind of don't reach out and, you know, I'll encounter. I have two heat pumps in my house, so they stopped working and I'm just trying to muddle along and deal with it. And I swear, Marta is like touched by the Holy Spirit because she always will message me out of the blue, like, you're on my heart. How are things going? And here's me trying to figure out how. And I had this company come out and they attempted to fix it, told me it was completely broke and it was going to cost $16,000 each to be replaced. And I am just falling apart in my house. Like, that's it. Put the for sale sign out. Like, I can't do this. I don't have that kind of money. What's going on? And she reached out, had no idea. And I don't often reach out because I don't want to bother other people and it's my problems and everybody's got their problems and I don't want to. But then she said, everything going okay? And I'm like, no, the guy says it's $16,000. And she's like, well, you know, I really think you should call this other company. And I did. And they came out and they got it fixed. I mean, it's a silly thing, but I never had to call a repairman. I never had to call a plumber or an electrician because he did any of that. He was just one of those guys that could fix anything. And so I've never had to... You know, I still find myself, myself, you know, not wanting to burden others. And But when she sends out that little text or somebody will say something and it's just a reminder that I don't have to do it alone. These people here really do care. Brought me flowers. After. I was struggling so much because I was getting ready for the garage sale to sell all his tools. And it was really, really an emotional experience. And I come home and she had brought me flowers. And it was like the sweetest sentiment. The constant reminder of how we're called to love each other. And I think that's evident here. 
Well, we're really grateful that you came in and shared your story with us and with everyone. And thank you, thank you for saying yes, because that's not easy. I was so excited to do. I mean, even though I knew I was going to sob, sob. Even though I knew I was going to sob, I'm so excited and I'm like honored that you were willing to say. Yes, because this is not like an easy podcast. It, it's a difficult one. And I just feel like there's so much to take and for people to just to learn and hear from you. But that doesn't mean that coming here and sitting tonight was easier. It didn't cost you something. You know what I mean? I'm really grateful that you're willing. <laughs> you know, I probably a few months ago, I would have said, nope, not doing that. But it's been a process and I am very passionate about you know, if I can change one person's perspective or touch one person's life and they can remember the words that they heard from me or my experience, it might change the trajectory of somebody else's. Like, I want to do that. Well, I just want you to know that you are worthy and you are loved and God looks at you and says, that's my daughter, and I delight in her. And you're also strong and God is with you and he says... You know, do not fear, for the Lord your God is with you, and be strong and courageous, and you're doing a good job. Oh, man. Wow, Thanks. I don't always believe that, but... Well, you're... Stop saying that. I know. (laughs) I know. Use your superpowers and believe it. We'll keep speaking it over over you until you do believe it. Yeah. And it's funny because I said that to Gracie the other day. She said something and I said, don't even speak that into existence. She's like, what are you talking about, mom? And I explained it to her. And then I'm like, well, maybe I should follow my own advice. (laughs) But yeah, I'm glad that I did it. And hopefully it can touch someone. Yes, that's it. I mean, really, I feel like that's why I'm here at night. Because they are, you know, I've learned, you know, just listening to other people's stories. And, you know, I think oftentimes when we're walking in our own guilt or shame or God might love you, but he could never love me after the things I've done. And just hearing that everybody has a story and everybody has a past and some things that they probably wish they could change. But those are the words. Even when you don't see it, he's working. Yes. And when you don't feel it, he's working. Yes. He never stops working. Make sure you tune in next week for another special guest. Bye. Bye.